It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome two guests to this portion of the show. A returning guest, Eager uh, Grossman, is here once again. And also we have Alan Choi. And they are here to talk about an article they co-authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, It's Not Stress That's Killing Us, It's Hate. Maybe mindfulness can help. So it's a pleasure to have both of them here. Now, they are both associate professors. Uh, Ellen is an associate professor uh, at uh, the soon-to-be-renamed Ryerson University, and uh, she is uh, a professor in the HRMOB, in the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Uh, she is also an organizational psychologist with training in the fields of social psychology and organizational behavior. She's received her PhD from the Ivy School of Business and her MSc from the London School of Economics. Her research interests involve around workplace well-being and mental health, and in particular, she studies the effects of mindfulness training on stress, attention, emotion regulation, errors, that's interesting, I'd like to know what that means exactly, authenticity, <laughs> resilience, and performance under pressure. Uh, she teaches in the area of organizational behavior on topics such as leadership, training and development, motivation and decision making. And get this, prior to graduate school, Ellen was actually working in the commercial real estate industry for eight years. Interesting. And she's also a yoga instructor. Wow, finding time for all this stuff. Wow. And she also is an executive meditation coach, delivers mindfulness workshops and keynote addresses to corporate audiences. So welcome to Ellen. Now, uh, Igor Grossman is a social cognitive scientist exploring the interplay of social cultural factors for wisdom and sound judgment and developing methods for tracing societal change. His work has been published in such outlets as the Proceedings of the Royal Academy B, Perspectives on Psychological Science, and also the Journal of Experimental Psychology and Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He con his contributions have been recognized through numerous awards. And as mentioned, he's an associate uh, editor of Social, Psychological and Personality Science and co-hosts the On Wisdom podcast. It's aiming to disseminate science scientific insights from uh, psychology, philosophy, and cognitive scientists to the broad academic audience and the general public. And there's an introduction for you, ladies and gentlemen. So welcome to <laughs> Igor Grossman and Ellen Choi. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. When I was reading that over and, and looking at your bios, I thought, what a fascinating world you guys work in. And, and I, can't, I can't imagine, well, I, I would love to be in your classes and hear some of the conversation and discussions that go on, because it's got to be fascinating stuff, especially these days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Igor's a bit of a legend, so mm. I would also like to sit in his class. <laughs> Igor, anything to add to that? I wish the times were less exciting. Sometimes it feels like we're all uh, in the social psychological experiment right now that is unfolding in front of our eyes. Mm, right. So uh, as I said off the top, we're here to discuss this article that you guys co-authored. It's not stress that's killing us. It's hate. Maybe mindfulness can help. Now, do you mind me asking how you guys got ta uh, started talking about the idea of creating this article and why? Who would like to address that? I can go. Sure. We began this research with our own empirical study, looking mm. at how mindfulness would relate to wise reasoning. Mm. But when we looked at the results, there were just curious things going on that weren't theoretically aligned with our understanding of mindfulness. Mm. And uh, the research itself was a collaboration with multiple authors who had access to multiple data sets. And what we, what came about in our discussions was that this was a pattern. It wasn't just an accident. And we thought, so what is actually going on? Mm. And this paper, although you're reading it in one iteration is, you know, the 75th version <laughs> of this right. line of thinking. So it's really evolved over time. And uh, what became clear was that there are 
distinct misunderstandings, one of the concept in general of mindfulness, but also um, on a more micro level, just the way that people are interpreting aspects of how we measure mindfulness. Mm. Hmm. And so that's how we arrived here. Okay, thank you. Uh, Igor, if you don't mind, I'd like to follow up with a question to you on the process and you guys talking about this because of the work that you do and the kind of work that you're involved with. It must be really interesting to uh, to delve into this stuff and and keep learning and seeing how the mind works and, and how our society evolves and, and reacts to things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, in the sciences, you have different types of uh characters hmm. some people try to prove something they think like everybody is wrong and i'm right hmm. and let me let me figure <laughs> out how i can communicate that message to everybody and others uh, uh really just try to you know try to see what is going on uh, i i hope that i belong to the latter camp even though you never hmm. know of course hmm. uh, because i do they also sometimes have the snag for uh telling people that everybody's wrong, <laughs> uh, as Ellen knows. Uh, but but the, the idea is uh, indeed to try to sort of like uh, just take a concept and um, especially if you have a puzzle like here with mindfulness, uh, what do people think it is? There's mm-hmm. different ideas, there's critique, and we'll get to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, try to see what what does research actually show? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do people mean by the term? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do they experience it? How do they report it? And then uh, try to use that sort of empirical lens, um, actual observations, actual scientific data to shed light on the uh, social and uh, societal debate. Right. Okay. Well, having said that, let's let's talk about this now because mindfulness and meditation sound very similar to me. And and kind of look when you look at someone that might be uh, in a mindfulness state, it looks like it's meditation. Uh, can can one of you tell me what the difference is? Uh, sure. I think that mindfulness is a higher level umbrella term. So it would be like saying sports or baseball, and then meditation might be one particular technique that's honing a larger skill. And honestly, we use this term quite callously, I think, but it really is all encompassing because there are many, even within mindfulness itself, we can be referring to a state or a trait or a practice or a way of life. Mm. And then within that, there are so many different types of practices. So meditation, I think you would consider a very specific technique that is cultivating mindfulness. And again, even within meditation, there are many different types of practices. Hmm. Interesting. So, so one would kind of help the other, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, they're, they're definitely related. They're just not one in the same. Right. Now, your article explains that there's this this perhaps a a, a growing uh, this tolerance for is getting weaker towards uh, the diverse social uh, issues that are playing on us what do you mean by that sure um well, first of all, I want to say that uh, there are two different types of articles that we have, and we should probably have addressed that even earlier. Mm. Uh, the, there is a piece in the conversation in which we try to connect the ideas of mindfulness to the general societal discourse. And let's return to that in a second. And the other one, the, the main scientific finding is reported in the uh, journal article in Clinical Psychology Review, mm-hmm. which is the main uh, review uh, outlet in the clinical field right. um, called uh, what do we what do people mean by mindfulness mm. um, and so when we try to sort of like uh, communicate the importance of it to the uh, general audience and uh, that's where Ellen and I uh, thought hard about like what would be sort of like the most important take-home message uh, when we were crafting the conversation piece, and by the way, we were also in uh, this idea is not just two of us. There are other authors mm. on the main paper, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, Norman Farb uh, had this idea that maybe we should talk more about the tolerance and the current societal discourse and acceptance of different opinions. Mm. And uh, so, why are we talking about tolerance of growing weaker towards diverse social issues? Um, 
there is this general sentiment, I think, in our society that uh, we are polarized. Mm-hmm. We don't like people who think differently from us. Uh, there are potentially algorithms and other uh, means uh, through which discourse proliferates on social media, uh, pushes us into echo chambers. And um, one idea here is that, you know, if you don't like something, you just like dismiss or avoid talking about it. Uh, you know, if you have friends or family, for instance, who are not vaccinated, it's a very contentious topic right mm, now. Mm. How are you supposed to embrace them? How you like? How are you supposed to even engage them? And so, what many people do is just avoid, avoid those people, maybe unfriend them, not even talk to them. And uh, that idea, even though it leads to uh, stress relief <laughs> in using sort of like more sort of mindfulness terms, is actually contraproductive and that's something that alan and i thought a lot about when we talked about the concept of mindfulness itself uh, not in the context of the uh, sort of bevers and the divisive societal issues uh, but we thought well th- gee this is a an interesting parallel an interesting connection because when we for instance in the clinical practice or just basic emotion regulation research when we talk about adaptive emotion regulation we're not talking about well just suppress those negative feelings or avoid talking to those people or those trigger moments that make you feel uh, those unpleasant emotions instead you may benefit from like restructuring your experience reevaluating how you feel uh, taking a bigger picture perspective on the issue and, and overall um, engage with the topic. Mm. And um, we thought that this is something that we could potentially do for the political and general societal discourse mm. that we have right now. Mm-hmm. Engage with the people, mm-hmm. engage with opinions that you potentially don't like or that you are uncomfortable with. And uh, that's how this kind of connection came about. Right. Okay. Thank you. It's interesting, though, that word tolerance and and growing weaker, I think, is in there. Uh, Alan, I'm going to ask you this because what what comes to mind is, are we, in fact, uh, this idea of avoidance? Is it because we're just getting beaten down so much? We, We don't know how to, we don't know how to do this anymore because we are so inundated with all of this stuff. We don't have a place to go and recharge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make some sense? It, it definitely makes sense. When I think about cognitive biases in general and how quick we are to discount what we hear or our presumption is that our line of thinking is neutral and we're objective in digesting the information we're taking in, when really we're just the analogy is like we're the we're the lawyer and the judge and we're making these arguments and interpreting the information all to make a case that we already believe in. Mm. And I think when you think about how stress or exhaustion or burnout changes our ability to think more broadly, this makes a lot of sense. Because you really are just, you have no capacity left. Mm. And understanding, compassion, empathy, these are, these tax the personal resources we have. So if you have nothing left, even self-regulation as a capacity to, um, I'm thinking of patience. Mm. You know, if you're entirely worn out, you're going to have no patience while you're child refuses to put their shoes on and you're going to have no patience for the student in a classroom that's not complying. You'll have no patience for, you know, uh, a cancer patient that's complaining about pain. It's, there's every situation requires that we have this gas tank of resources to draw from. And when we don't have it, then we're fatigued. There's nothing in the tank to offer some generosity towards somebody else's differences. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests here on the show are Alan Choi and uh, Igor Grossman, and they are here talking about an article they co-authored in the conversation. It is entitled, It's Not Stress That's Killing Us, It's Hate. Maybe Mindfulness Can Help. And so we are talking about that, and it's a pleasure to have them both here. Um, 
Igor, you mentioned something about uh, engaging discomfort and and how mindfulness is it, it sort of. I think you guys talked about how mindfulness is in fact partly engaging discomfort, which is interesting uh, as a as an as a, a thought. How how does that work? I, I would say that engagement could mean, of course, many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, in a typical emotion. A sort of like a conceptualization uh, when you talk about emotion regulation, one uh, common idea that uh, clinicians would uh, bring up is the idea of um, uh, reappraisal. Uh, it's a form of engagement where you focus on the issue at hand, uh, often a negative, adverse issue, but you try to reevaluate it in different ways. You try to take, for instance, different perspectives into account. You uh, take a bigger picture viewpoint, um, uh, different angles, consider how it may change in the future versus here and now, and so on. And so this type of cognitive process where you reappraise the experience, where you engage with it, uh, but try to not just immerse yourself in the moment of re- reflecting on it in your own, in front, as if it's again in front of your eyes, but uh, taking this step back um, is often adaptive. So that's often what leads to uh, positive outcomes, be it psychophysiological uh, or uh, prevents you from uh, spiraling into distress and depression. Um, uh, as a consequence of experiencing those negative things. And, and so the take-home message is it's an engagement, but it's an engagement in a particular way. It's not just that you want to re-experience the same thing again and mm. again, mm. but you're not avoiding it. Uh, because what does avoidance do? The avoidance just makes you uh, forget it in the moment. But when you, in, for instance, uh, would face the same experience again, you would be at ground zero. You would have to start all over and you will not have any cognitive capacities or mental capacities in general to approach it more adaptively. Whereas if you engage with the experience the first time after you encountered it, you may develop some tools to more effectively approach it in the future. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, he was passing that question over to you, Ellen. Mm-hmm. And I'm thanks, Igor, for doing that, because this is my favorite question. <laughs> okay. I think it really gets at the heart of what we were examining. And I just think it's such an important part of a practical implication of this research, mm. because when people get uncomfortable, the question is, what do you do when you right. when you feel grief and suffering and overwhelm? What are you doing with that? And when you look very broadly at what's happening, call it in Canadian statistics, you have people that are, um, we spend money to the point we're mm-hmm. in debt. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you either watch Netflix or you drink too much or you're addicted to some substance. But as these statistics rise, it suggests that as we get uncomfortable, we look outside of ourselves mm. to numb or mute or, right. you know, or even... Right. Maybe you just throw yourself more into your work. Right. But we're not head on engaging the the challenge. And mindfulness as engagement suggests that when we can relate to the stressor with this quality of acceptance, curiosity, non-judgment, openness, um, non-striving. These are some of the classic mindfulness attitudes. Um, It's not to say that I'm going to accept this thing forever, like that, you know, it is what it is. It's actually not it is what it is forever in perpetuity. It's just, can I actually see the stressor as it is and allow it to be that for a moment so I can see it clearly? And then what am I going to do with that? And that's very different, I think, than saying, ouch, that feels yucky. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to eat more of this. I have young children. So (laughs) these are all my analogies (laughs) when I when I see what they're doing. But it's, you know, they cry. And even our parental responses 
oh, you know, here, have this bottle of milk mm, or, mm, oh, here, have mm, this toy right. or here, watch this show. Right. And it's, it doesn't afford us the opportunity to work with the event, the experience. And when you actually use this attitude of acceptance with awareness, so they're coupled together and the sort of original mindfulness teachings will say it's like two two wings of a bird. You take awareness and this quality of equanimity or acceptance, curiosity, and together that allows you to relate to what's difficult in a way that you can, in fact, engage with it, make sense of it in a different way, the way Igor was saying, to reappraise or reinterpret, not just relive it as the same instance of suffering, mm-hmm. but to make sense of it in a different way. And then move on. You move through it instead of around it or avoid it. Mm. You mentioned about the study that you guys had done. What did you find, uh, briefly, uh, from the study that that you did on on mindfulness, uh, just as we're starting to finish up here? Mm -hmm. Well, it was a bit of an empirical beast, to be honest. Mm. We began with a search on the meaning of mindfulness by looking at how words were appearing in different text Mm. and grouped together in order for us to make sense of what what words are grouped together in order to approximate a meaning of mindfulness. Mm. And we were curious to see this criticism that mindfulness is just this very individualistic, (laughs) self-serving, relief-oriented endeavor, Mm. is that truly the case? Mm. And when we looked at the words or co-locates in this manner, um, it, it doesn't seem to be warranted. So, engagement, acceptance, um, these still appear together. But when we looked at the actual data. So, does mindfulness relate in the way that it theoretically should to outcomes like wise reasoning? Mm. It it breaks down mm. and it breaks down by how well, how much context you have with this phenomenon. Mm. What I mean by that is if you were an expert, right. either steeped in the tradition or you have your own practice or you've attended a certain amount of training and uh, you maintain some sort of formal practice on your own, then mindfulness as awareness and acceptance, sort of this attentional and attitudinal component, they would work together and then relate as we might expect to outcomes aligned to mindfulness. Okay. But if you were a novice, mm-hmm. then there were these odd correlations or lack of correlations. So, while mindfulness and, um, not mindfulness, rather, by awareness and acceptance in that sort of two-winged bird analogy should fly together, um, with novices, they don't. So, they're not working together. And then, mm. even worse still, the acceptance portion Uh, it actually gets misinterpreted. So, like Igor was saying at the beginning of this interview, it's getting interpreted as passivity or suppression or avoidance in that your stress may be decreasing because you are just not dealing with what's happening or you're, um, you know, you, you put your hands up in the air. It is what it is. Okay, fine. But then it's almost like the doormat effect where you just allow things to be what they are without engaging. All right. Sounds like uh, what you're saying is, and you pointed out this earlier in the conversation, that we're looking out, we look for answers with outside of ourselves rather than looking in, and that's what we probably should be doing more of is looking inwards. Uh, that's one of the things I'm hearing, but it also sounds like there's more there's more need for an, an understanding and education around what mindfulness is. I mean, I, as a mindfulness proponent, <laughs> um, would agree. I think there's a lot of salutary benefits that come with the practice. Mm. Um, but it, I always bristle when I read something and I can, it sounds like there wasn't really a reasonable or meaningful understanding of the term. Mm. So, 
as one example, uh, I think it's John Kabat-Zinn that says, like, do the dishes just to do the dishes. Mm. Don't do the dishes just to get them clean. Yeah. And that taken out of context makes no sense because who wants to do the dishes <laughs> just to do the dishes? Of course you're doing them to right. get them clean. Right. But we move through most of our life, you know, going through task A in order to get to task Z. Right. And mindfulness says, hey, slow down, just actually be here long enough to feel a, the weight of a dish in your hand or the mm. warmth of the water and then see what happens. Yeah. And I think that it's so easy to criticize mindfulness and say, gosh, what a waste of time. Mm. Non-striving, why? Mm. that makes no sense in this cultural zeitgeist, but it's more complicated than that. Right. It's much deeper than that. We're going to have to leave it there. Fascinating speaking with both of you, and thank you very much. And just I'll just add this, and of course, you're, if you're going to wash the dishes, you're going to wash them to be clean, because if you don't, you're probably going to have to do them again. Because <laughs> right? they're still going to be dirty. So, yeah, do them right the first time. <laughs> so, uh, Igor and uh, Ellen, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show and share your thoughts around your article. It's not stress that's killing us, it's hate. Maybe mindfulness can help. And you can find that on the conversation. Uh, look for it and read it. It's a great article. And you might learn something and to certainly learn something about mindfulness. So, uh, Ellen and Igor, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Igor Grossman and Ellen Choi, they are both assistant professors. Ellen at Ryerson University and Igor at uh, the University of Waterloo. And it's been a pleasure to have them on the show. That's this portion of our show. Please don't go away because we will be back with more right after these messages right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today, I have with me director Karen Shopswitz, and she's here to talk about a new documentary that is going to be premiering on TVO uh, coming up on November 27th at 8 p.m. It is entitled Magic Shadows, El Weost, A Life in in movies and it is directed by Karen so it's a pleasure to have her here now Magic Shadows Elwiost is a uh, a life in movies that highlights Elwi's achievements and his legacy in both education and film in Ontario now it's interesting it's a, you might say it is a star-studded documentary uh, because of the people that are involved in some of the interviews that you get to see with uh, Elwi and that he has done over the years in his time on a Saturday night at the movies and it's a, it's a real pleasure to have uh, Karen here to talk about the movie but a little more about Karen she's a Peabody award-winning filmmaker who has been screened nationally and internationally some of her credits include The Other Side of the Hero, Grandparenting, produced in association with TVO, and One Summer at Camp Winston, and My Father's Camera, which is, of course, the film that she won the prestigious uh, Peabody Award for. She's worked on dozens of other productions, ranging from standalone documentaries to documentary series for television, music, videos, and fiction. She's a Bachelor of Journalism and a degree of Carl at Carleton University, and a Master's of Fine Arts in Film and Video from my old school, York University. And she is uh, she has a certificate in feature film writing from UCLA's online writer's studio and women in the director's cheer program in Banff. Uh, she also teaches film uh, production and editing at Toronto's Centennial College. So uh, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to meet this person. <laughs> <laughs> and really nice to be able to uh, list people's accolades and what they have done, because it really shows, you know, the amount of work that you have put into things as well. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, speaking of putting work into things, uh, this film, I think it is such a great way to honor Al Yost. It, you know what, for me, one of the best parts about doing this film, and you mentioned the interviews, mm. is that we had access to watching all of the wonderful interviews that Elwi did. And for me, as a you know journalist, filmmaker, mm. watching him in action was mm. overwhelming. <laughs> it just right. I would joke with the editor, Deb Palloway, that sometimes, you know, we'd both be looking at interviews and I'd be like, well, call me in two hours because <laughs> I'm not coming up for air. 
<laughs> yeah, right. It's true, isn't it? You, you, when you start watching him, he was as as engaging as the films that he he presented. Absolutely, and and what you mentioned too, right? Like you know, we talked about it in the film, and certainly in the interviews, that he would have been a lousy critic. I think he worked for a mm. very short time as a film critic, yeah. and it didn't work out because he was just too genial, too enthusiastic, always finding the good in a film, yeah. and also looking. You know, he sort of peeled back the curtain and looked at what was happening behind the scenes, which I also really appreciated when revisiting him was realizing it wasn't just the stars, but he's looking at who's the prop maker, yeah. who's the set designer, yeah. how did the art department work, who are the composers? And those right. are interviews that I really gravitated towards when I was going back into those archives. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you, you of course mentioned that in the film as well. And it's really nice to see that he had that love, not just of the director or what we were watching, but because of exactly what you said, the people behind the scenes, the people that brought that film film together because it does take a team of people to put a film together. Absolutely. And I, I have to give full credit. Meredith Usher, who is the producer mm. and did the interviews in this film, he is the ultimate fan of Elwi mm. and had studied him. And so that was something that was amazing. You know, we'd get a list of the archives and Meredith would go, yeah, I remember that interview. We should look at that. Yes, that one's great. And just seeing his passion and getting to see Meredith talking to these people that were so heavily influenced by Elwi in the same way that Meredith had been was really like a, a joy for me going through this documentary. Yeah. I, so you said, like you said, um, you, you know, you had to, to actually say, Hey, I'm going to watch this interview because it's so fascinating at times. So did, would you say the process for putting this together took a little longer than normal? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I could fairly say that. <laughs> well, and also, please remember, too, and I, I give full credit to Colette Vosberg, our producer, and our crew, Blair and Michael, the DOP and, and the sound person. We were shooting over the time of COVID, so mm. things did take a little longer. Sure. We had a little break in the middle right. before we could start filming again. And and that was uh, interesting, but I think we really held it together and I was really impressed with the way we were able to get through all of this stuff. Well, I, I guess the other thing, of course, because you were working with TVO, uh, you had access to a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah, we had a lot. Well, they basically opened the archive for us, which right. was incredible. And I've yeah. been hearing about it. Like Risa Schumann, who was the producer of Saturday Night the Movies for years, and it mm. started out as his researcher. I've known her forever. And I always thought she had the coolest job in the world. <laughs> right. Because she got to A, work with Elby, mm. who, who wouldn't want to. But also she got to be there for all of those interviews. Also Dorothy Engelman, who was in our film. You know, I just looked at these women and thought, wow, like you, I'm watching them, but you actually got to do mm. those interviews and be with Elwi on set or in Janet Lee's living room when they were doing these interviews. So that was incredible. Yeah, no, being able to have access to that stuff, which you don't normally get to see unless you had somehow taped all of them. But Elwi always had that warning up this video not to be recorded, yeah. not to be re recorded. Yeah. You know, um, I guess the uh, the other thing in in looking at this, of course, is yes, we he brought us uh, all that great stuff, but this film now is is just as wonderful because it takes us inside Elwi's life, things we didn't know about him. Uh, yeah. I didn't know he was a teacher. I didn't know that's where he started, um, and uh, and we we look at his life and. There are so many things that are just as amazing and fascinating that, that he did on a personal level about how he shaped TVO, for instance. Yeah, that, that was something that also would, that was our aim, was to really not do a review of all of the shows. People who grew up in Ontario or elsewhere, too, it was broadcast in upstate New York through PBS, mm. or, or I think not through PBS, but they were getting the signal. So people knew of him. But for us, it was a chance to get to know the Elwi behind the Elwi. And I, too, did not remember that he was a teacher. For me, the biggest thing was I loved, I grew up watching Degrassi and mm. seeing mm. that He's in the very first what became the series Degrassi. Isn't I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, seeing that, and it was called something else at that point, right? It was. It's uh, Ida makes a movie. Yeah. Was this very short film that right. uh, that um, Linda Schuyler had done to kind of you know not even knowing that it would grow into this yeah. unbelievable. Uh, franchise or series yeah. of shows and seeing Elwi up there in that role. He was a, 
he, from what we discovered in talking to his sons, Graham and Chris, was mm-hmm. that he wanted to be either an actor or a director and yep. did some acting. In the in the R documentary, which I absolutely love this, he made a really weird film yes, in 1948. <laughs> and I think that's all I want to say because I want you to watch the movie. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. It's just like when I when I saw it, it was just like, that's Ellie made this movie? <laughs> It's true. And and that's some of the other wonderful things. Uh, for instance, the when he was in uh, when he was living in England, um, you know, in his early days, I guess. And uh, and and he actually gets a, another credit in a film that he has, mm-hmm. a, you know. Yeah, he's in for a moment. <laughs> And we, we highlight it so you can see it. Yeah. You don't miss the moment, <laughs> moment. But he's in John Houston's Moulin Rouge. I know. And then when you get to think that he got to interview Houston yes. after. I know. <laughs> it, it really is wonderful. It's like this full circle. And it's like... It's like his own magic, you know, it touched other things that blossomed when you we see about, um, you know, what happens in his own personal life with his sons. I mean... Yeah. Holy smokes. Didn't see that one coming, you know, uh, at all, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of, like, when you realize that he influenced his son, Chris, by talking about music, yep. he becomes a composer. Yep. And then his other son, Graham, does this, maybe you've heard of it, a film called yeah, Speed. Maybe. <laughs> which kickstarts a massive career. And there's a moment in the, in our documentary where Graham talks about the influence for Speed, which, yep. oddly enough, yep. and I say that facetiously, came through Elwee. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's incredible. And, you know, I mean, there's also one of my favorite moments in the film is when Elwee and his wife, Lila, are at the opening of Speed. And you're just blown away <laughs> of thinking of the excitement there must have been, the pride he had in seeing his son do this is mm-hmm. unbelievable. And it's also a love story between Elwee and his wife, Lila. Sure. They're a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. And you can see how much they influenced each other and loved each other. And it all comes back to film. Yeah, <laughs> the love of All film. Of <laughs> even that, even that relationship comes oh. back to film. Uh, yeah. You know, when he first uh, takes her out, and he, he he has this bad date or something with someone, mm-hmm. uh, and takes her to see some some more uh, serious kind of a film. The Maltese Falcon. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't go well, and then he takes uh, his his wife to be uh, to a musical, and it's after that he finds out that she's not really into musicals. She likes more the kind of stuff that he likes. Well, the fact that, you know, the, the thing that bonds them is the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. yeah. It's an odd one for a first date topic. And <laughs> that was the one thing, you know, when we talk about Elle, we loved everything. I didn't know this. I do love musicals. So mm. I was a little personally affronted, but apparently <laughs> Elle did not like musicals. Oh. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and what, you would think that he would, right? What, what Did you find out anything about why? I, you know what, I don't think he liked the whole contrivance of them. Hmm. Well, you know what, I'm kind of there with him because when I first saw musicals, I always thought, it's weird that people are breaking into song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but wouldn't life be great if it was? <laughs> <laughs> Only in the movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's probably where he was coming from. I don't think he would have been a fan of the remake of Moulin Rouge. Mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. We get to see all of these things. Now, What is there anything that, that jumps out in terms of when you first started getting into this that surprised you or stuck with you? Well, you know what, like when we first were starting to talk about this film and mm. Meredith had come up with a wish list of people that had been influenced by Elwi, and I looked at it and thought, oh yeah, okay, maybe, sure. And then when we started talking to them and you realized that they were a major influence, like Ron Mann was one of the ones I really enjoyed seeing because, you know, he's gone on to have an amazing career in mm. documentary and in yeah. filmmaking. And you see Ron as a a kid, basically, yeah, in his exactly. 20s, hanging yeah. out with Elwi, doing this. I had no idea that he had done, Ron had created this little commercial for the Toronto Film Society starring Elwi, mm. telling people not to talk during the movie. Right. And then you see how that relationship just built between the two of them. Those were the things that I really loved, loved to see. Cameron Bailey, you know, talking about how he got an appreciation of film by watching Elwi yeah. on TV. And so knowing that he had that legacy. And then the other part, you know, I, I don't know, I'm sure 
you've probably gone, we've all gone to those open houses on at TVO on the on the roof over the years and seeing Elwee interact with, there's one point where he's telling a little boy about a Western that's coming up on TV. That's right. That's right. And those are the moments that I love that there was nobody that he wouldn't talk to. Yeah. And, and it seemed that he always brought it back around to film, whoever mm-hmm. he was talking to. And we, we see that in there as well. Um, yeah. He always brings it back uh, and asks people about what their interests are in film. What are their favorite films? Yeah, it was great. Like, that's the thing, you know, having done this for a long time in terms of the kind of films I've made. And then you get to sit back and watch the master, (laughs) the unbelievable interviewer and see how, you know, I think his style of interviewing would stand up today. We asked that in the film. But will we have a career today? Would he be able to to exist in this world of YouTube and multi-channels and aggregates of of cinema Mm -hmm. and i think he would because that personable style and the way that he just you feel like he's sitting with a friend whether or not it is john houston or or um jerry goldsmith the Mm. composer you just feel he's with a friend he's broken down any of those barriers and that's amazing to see well he he just is genuine he just seemed so genuine that's all right that's what that's what he was yeah. And, you know, the big thrill for me, and I was, you know, because of COVID, we couldn't go there in person, was Leonard Malton, who, right. I, you know, like, he's just such a fixture. But the fact that he was a fixture on the show, they did these yeah. um, shows every year in this yeah. this kind of, what does Leonard think about the films, about Elwes lineup? And that was yeah. really, really cool to see. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and it is a pleasure to have with me here on the show the director for Magic Shadows, Elwee Yost, A Life in Movies, which is going to be premiering on uh, TVO on November 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also catch it on TVO.org, YouTube, and uh, Roku. Uh, so with me is Karen Shopsowitz, and it's a pleasure to have her here. Um at one point, you know, you say in a comment about his influence on other filmmakers. I thought that was interesting. What did you mean by that? Well, I think what he did was he instilled a real love of cinema hmm. and let people know that this was a way to be creative. And And I think filmmakers, I use it broadly, you know, when he is talking to somebody who works behind the scenes and you're getting to see this on TV. I think if I were a young person watching that, I'd say, Oh wow, that's a job. (laughs) I can do that. (laughs) Like, you know, having that side of Uh it and also exposing us to so like, you know, as a kid, I saw films I would not have seen normally if it wasn't for only bringing them in on a Saturday night. So, you know, and like, you know, we have in the, in the film Aurora from, you know, she talks about how, Growing up in Thunder Bay, it's not like your local movie house is showing yeah. all of these great classics. You don't yeah. have those kind of um, retro houses or art cinema houses that you would have had access to. Right. So I think that was a huge influence. And that's something we really want to stress, that it wasn't just Toronto. It's all over Ontario where he's letting people watch these movies and hear these interviews. And that surprised me as well, because I would have thought that it, grew to beyond Ontario, but just because of the the way it, it, it felt like you were watching uh, a national program. This is something that, that I thought should have gone, should have been across the country, should have been, in, in fact, right across North America because of the quality that he brought to the show. I agree. <laughs> I wish, but I guess TVO over those years was only Ontario, but I, you know, I agree totally. This would have had such a broad audience throughout. Did you get a sense from um, from talking to people and uh, and watching uh, you know some of the other footage that he did? How soon when the show started that it's really started to catch on and his his style and his his personality really started to make a difference? How soon that started to happen? Well, I think Bruce Pittman in the film, who was one of the early directors on the series, I think he talks about how. You know, right after the first few shows, they started getting the numbers. Mm. And I, I, I think that's what happened. I, I can't speak to it right. with any kind of authority, but it feels like it just took off. Yeah. 
Uh, you're right. I think he did mention some numbers. And of course, that was, when did the show start airing? In the 70s? 70s? 70s, yeah, 25 years. So when you think about it, yeah. also the fact that how many shows last, except for the <laughs> odd um, soap opera, right. can last for 25 years. Yeah. And then still endures after. It lasts for another 15 yeah. or 14 years after Elwee. We also get to see an interview with, with uh, some students when he was teaching. And yeah. they were just as enthusiastic about him saying what a great teacher he was. Well, there's that one woman at a party, and I love what she says. He taught in Technicolor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I would have loved, I, I wish I could teach in Technicolor. <laughs> I, wouldn't you love that for high school? Yeah, there were wonderful descriptions that really match him. And, and it's really interesting that people are triggered to talk about him in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that, that was, there wasn't anybody that said anything contrary about Elwee, because I don't think you could. Yeah. And in the interviews, you could see as, as we were doing them, people just lit up. And even now, you know, like I, I posted that we were, that the film was airing on TVO on Facebook. And out of the blue, people that I'd known for years who I never thought were Elwee fans, mm. I don't know why, I never thought either way about it, mm. started posting things like, oh, I remember sitting with my mom and watching <laughs> these. I remember wa- coming home from school to watch Magic Shadows. Like, it, it, the response has been incredible. People light up when you say, yeah, we, we just finished a film on Elwee Yost. And, and I know that there's another line in the film that I thought was really interesting about what people were doing on Saturday night because people, there was a comment about, uh, what are you doing tonight? Are you going out? I don't know. What's on Elwee? What's on Elwee? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that was a very legitimate way of looking at it. And also, you know, when you're a little bit younger, not necessarily going out yet, mm. dating or any of that stuff. Mm. I mean, Ron Mann talks about that, yeah. that you've, you're going to stay home and watch movies. <laughs> yeah, and you know, that sincerity that he, he brought, that enthusiasm, uh, like, like you said, that's probably why he wouldn't make a good critic because, and it was probably what part of the magic that he brought to sitting there talking about uh, a film or about, you know, what he, he was going to present because he didn't come off with, uh, with oh, and by the way, you know, or this wasn't the greatest about this or, you know, it was always something positive. It was always, he was always finding that positivity, as you said, in, in whatever he brought forward. And it was sincere. You saw that. You never got, um, you know, a, a sense that he wasn't being sincere about what he was doing. No, and I also like that what he did, too, is he shone a light on some of the, even though he was enthusiastic and positive, he also talks, like in the film we have a section where he talks to Norman Jewison about mm. what is going on with the, the Canadian film industry in the late 70s. Why aren't we watching more Canadian mm-hmm. films? He, and, and that was a really important thing for us to put in there, was that Elwi was the person that was putting a focus onto those issues as well. And asking some of the of the harder questions about what is going on in filmmaking. And you mentioned uh, Leonard uh, Malton and and his influence in south of the border, of course. And it was like they were two of the same. You know, you had the northern Elwee <laughs> and you had uh, the the USA uh, Leonard down there. But what do you think Elwee's um, uh, sense uh, or or what he was thought of in in you know Tinseltown and in Hollywood because he he did some uh, he did have these great interviews that he did I have a feeling that maybe at the beginning they weren't sure what to make of this affable happy <laughs> person right. but but he seemed to be able to work his way into their hearts so they were agreeing to do these interviews yeah and not taking away from how hard it must have been for Risa and Dorothy over yeah. the years to, to land these people. Right. Because these are major, major, major stars. Henry yeah. Fonda, like, you know, the people at the height of, of, of Hollywood and Tinseltown. But I think he broke those barriers down always because he was this really good person to talk to. Yeah. And you got the sense that they felt great after the yeah. interview. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, of course, none of this could have happened had TVO not come online, right? Yeah, it was perfect. You know, Colette, the producer, was talking about this. It it coincided so beautifully with the fact that last year was TVO's 50th anniversary. Wow, yeah. yeah. And it just made sense. And I think it it was time to go back and rediscover this person who had really been the foundation of TVO for so many years. And didn't he coin that 
Um, because yeah, it, originally it was that. a different name, right? Oh, it had a horrible name originally. <laughs> Meta or something. I, um, it was a really weird name. It was right. an acronym and it was strange. And they had a contest and LE won yeah. and came up with TV Ontario. Yeah, yeah. So what are you taking away from this? Um, it's interesting. Well, I think what it's, it's given me, it's rekindled my love mm. for old movies. You know, as we were doing this, I'd, I'd be like looking at, you know, any reference he had. And I was like, oh, ooh, I wonder where I can get that. Is that, is that on Netflix? I'd really like to rewatch that film. Mm-hmm. You know, Like sort of going back to these movies that he mentioned and thinking and also thinking about myself. Like, you know, what films influenced me? What do I go back to when right. when I think of the best films that I've seen over the years? And and also just rekindling that love for the behind the scenes material. Right. And and not forgetting about that, uh, and he gets you, you get to see some of the some great uh, like you said uh, interviews, um, you know some of those really early um, uh, films that had special effects in them. Uh, I forget uh, I forget the name of the guy that did a lot of those things. He's in oh, there. it's a it's a long name, and yeah. I I forget it too, and I'm really sorry. It's uh, Ray ha- Ray Harryhausen or something. Ray, right. yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. And they talk about is it Dynomation? Yeah, it's that weird kind of yeah. You know, when you think of when it is, yeah. So we're talking back in 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 the 40s or 50s. I'll yeah. have to look this up, and, and you'll see it in the movie. So watch the film. Yeah. But when you think <laughs> about that kind of work that was being done back then, and a lot of it when I was watching it, it sounds a bit like the way they do video games now. Mm. <laughs> right. Because he was talking right. about mapping yep. the um the characters, the right. real people yep. interacting with models. Yes, it's going to be premiering on November 27th at 8 p.m. Uh, and it begins streaming the same day on uh, TVO.org, YouTube, and uh, Roku, so people can watch there. It is entitled Magic Shadows, Elbiost, A Life in Movies, directed by Karen Shopowitz, who is my guest here on Moment of Truth today. And it's been a real pleasure having you here, Karen. And, and thank you to you at TVO and everyone that brought the idea of putting this together and bringing this out to uh, show everyone and to uh, honor Elbiost's uh, life uh, and, and the wonderful things that he did to, uh, to help us, uh, well, I guess throughout, uh, you know, Ontario and TVO uh, with, with bringing uh, Saturday Night at the Movies to, to uh, our homes. No, I really appreciate it. And I, I just always go back to thank goodness for Meredith Escher, who grew up with this passion that, uh, for Elwi and loving what he did and saying to us, I want to make this into a film and I want people to, to rediscover Elwi. Mm. And then for me, Getting to do that was mm-hmm. amazing. Nicely said. We'll leave it there. Uh, make sure you watch Magic Shadows, Elwi Yost, A Life in Movies, coming up on November 27th at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. It also begins streaming that same day on TVO.org, YouTube, and Roku. And it is also going to be rebroadcast, if I'm not mistaken, on uh, Monday, November 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern, and Thursday, December 2nd at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Karen, thank you so much for being on the show and bringing this. It's been such a pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you so much. I just want to say one thing. Yeah. That time slot where it's premiering is the original Saturday Night at the Movies time slot. Yes, that's right. Of course it is. Yeah, right? <laughs> How else would you do it? That's right. All right, Karen, thank you so much. You take care. Thanks a lot, David. All right, take care. And that is our show for today. It's been a pleasure having you with us. We'll see you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.